Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. We are looking at how the gospel of Christ triumphs over the battle of the sexes. Amen. Amen. We're going to be diving not only into uh, relationships within marriage, and I do believe we are going to be touching on some things that are going to really bring some freedom to a lot of marriages in the house. Uh, but we're going to be touching on all kinds of issues, gender-related issues that affect everybody, that touch on all kinds of things. We're going to be talking about male-female relationships and friendships uh, within the church, within ministry. We're going to talk about singleness. We're going to talk about romance. We're going to talk about some controversies and some problems in the world, and the problem of porn. Yeah, we're going to go there. Porn Sunday, we're going to have three services that morning. Bring all your friends, we're bringing extra chairs. <laughs> I don't know. You never know when you're talking about porn, it's either going to be packed out or it's like just going to be me and Melissa here. I don't know. Um, that's where we're headed, though, in this series, and I'm excited about it. Now, by the way, what I do want to show you here is that if there is a question that you have touching on any kind of gender issue, because all of us, this is a personal thing for us, that you would like to see addressed we want to hear from you, and we want to know about that. And so uh, we're going to take an entire week at the end of this series to answer the questions that you have, okay? The things that are burning on your heart, you've always been afraid to ask. So there's a lot of different ways you can let us know. You can email it, you know, if you're old school, because email's old school now. You can email it to uh, questions at gchurch.net. You can tweet us, gchurchspring, or you can shoot us a question on the church app. That's just the easiest way to do it on the church app, there's a button right on the front page, a new button called Questions for Pastor. And you click on that, you type in, it goes directly to me. You don't even have to put your name on it if you're scared to do that. So it'll be fun. And so we're going to have kind of FAQ Sunday at the end of this series, and that's going to be a lot of fun. We want to hear from you. Praise God. Okay, men and women, get ready. When you get down to it, is there any subject is more baffling or fascinating or frustrating to us as human beings? Today, we're living in this, the Me Too movement is happening right now. You know, women rising up against their oppressors. But this is like stuff that's been happening forever. This is nothing, nothing really new. We've been grappling with this ever since I think that first human dude woke up to find the first human female and said, whoa, man, we haven't known what to do with each other. That was a joke. <laughs> we, we haven't known what to do with each other ever since. There's a lot of reasons for that. Not only because there are definitely some, some fundamental biological distinctions going on before us, right? We can't pretend like we're all exactly the same. There's some obvious differences going on between the sexes. But you know what? Also, there's a whole lot of stereotypes out there that are not necessarily helpful. And a lot of the sort of like gender-based stereotypes that we laugh about, they can actually be a roadblock to us treating each other with dignity and learning from each other and, and treating each other with respect. Because the truth is, within... The populations of men and the populations of women, there are individuals. We are individuals. There is a spectrum of unique individuality within all of us, right? And it blurs a lot of the, the gender lines that we think of. Let's think of one thing. Have, anybody ever heard of this? Men are logical. Women are emotional. Anybody ever heard this little chestnut? <laughs> men are logical and women are emotional. Problem is, I am good friends with some extremely left-brained, logic-oriented women. And at the same time, I've got some dude friends who are like really emotionally in touch with their feelings and like cry at movies and stuff. 
It's all across the board. And the problem is when we get into these sort of gender stereotypical conversations, you know, like all men are this way and all women are this way, those are the people who are left sitting there going, oh, are you saying there's something wrong with me? What's wrong with me? You know, because I don't really fit into that category. And I'm here to say, no, there's nothing wrong with you. You are an individual. You are an individual. Praise the Lord. Here's another one. It's common. Men love sports and women love shopping. Have, have you met my wife? She is like able to compete at a high level at just about everything, right? She can beat me at just about every sport there is. And the only thing she hates worse than losing is shopping, right? Which I thank God for every day. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for my smoking hot wife who hates shopping. Yeah. On the other hand, I've got a dude friend. I'm not exaggerating. I've got a dude friend calls me up on Super Bowl Sunday in the afternoon and says, what are you doing? You want to hang out? He didn't know there was a game on. And I'm like, how are we friends? Here's one. Men are conquerors and women are nurturers. Men are conquerors, women are nurturers. Again, have you seen Melissa drive? She, she is like crawl the vanquisher out there on the highway. No, okay, no, I'm kidding. She's also very nurturing. Okay. <laughs> I'm picking on you. That's it, yes. Uh, there's so many different things that we typically assign, oh, that's, that's women's work or that's men's things or something like that. You know, in our home, cooking in the kitchen, we both love to do that. That's one of our favorite things to do together. We love cooking together. Yard work, we both hate it. So it just doesn't happen, right? Some of these stereotypes that, you know, we typically assign, some of them may be true for some men and women. They may be even true for kind of a bell curve of men and a bell curve of women. But a lot of these gender stereotypes out there just don't apply to everybody. And that's because you are more than your gender. You are more than your gender. You are an individual. And every single one of you is individually and wonderfully, uniquely made by God. You are uniquely made by God. So we have to get that out of the way. On the other hand, there are, it seems, some scientifically demonstrated differences between the sexes, aren't there? And some of these are sort of biological distinctives. Some of these have been sort of culturally encoded over the centuries. One obvious difference is size. Size, just when it comes to mass, men tend to be, as a population, they tend to be about, I think it's about 7% bigger than women, taller, larger, however it is. Of course, there's short men and tall women, right, within, within that. So that's just one thing. Here's an interesting one I, I learned about. Women's eyes have more variety of cones. Cones are those tiny little structures that are inside the iris or pupil. They allow them to see more colors. Isn't that fascinating? So a woman might be able to tell, distinguish between different shades of color, whereas a, a man just kind of more sees it one, one big color. Women also have superior peripheral vision. In their, in their eyes. Uh, and so a woman will be able to take in more around them at the same time. Men have, have greater tunnel vision, you know, so, so they can focus in on something and hunt it and kill it, I guess. But, <laughs> but that really, it really kind of, it affects the differences in how our brains process visual data. And uh, I, I find this to come into play, especially when I'm looking for something in the refrigerator. When I'm looking, right? This is how it happens usually around my house. I've got the fridge open. I'm in there going, 
honey, where's the salsa? You know, where is it? You know, and she says, it's in the fridge. And I'm like, I'm looking around like this. You know, I'm looking like I can only see one thing at a time. I'm just, you know, my, I'm hunting and pecking throughout the fridge. The salsa's right in front of me, but I'm looking like this. No, it's not in here. I'm looking. She's like, no, it was in there this morning. And I'm like, no, someone must have taken it out of the fridge. And so, you know, what happens? She comes over with that little sigh that she thinks I don't notice, but I did. She goes to the fridge, magically produces a jar of salsa, right? How does she do that? Because she can open the fridge and go, Wah, and see everything there. You know, when I'm doing this like a, like a little bird. Um, interesting, interesting. Uh, here's one, uh, mental and, mentally and emotionally, they say women mature faster than than men. It was certainly true in our relationship. When we were married, uh, Mel was 20, I was 26 at the time, and it took those extra years just for me to match up, to, to catch up to her maturity level already, that's for sure. They say by 17 years old, researchers say that women have the full developmental psychological equipment to behave as a functioning adult. By 17, the full functional the biological equipment to behave as a functioning adult. At 17, right? At 17, boys are still like giving each other wedgies and fighting over the Xbox. It's a, it's a huge difference. I have boys. I know this to be true. Um, here's one. Women detect a smell, they say, better than men. Again, we see that around the house a lot. At least once a week, Mel will go, what's that smell? Ugh, what is that? And I'm like... I don't smell anything. This, that's, that's very common. Um, on the other hand, they say men detect uh, salty better, their taste of salty, and women detect the taste of sweet better. I thought that was interesting. On the other hand, it says that the brain areas that specialize in spatial awareness, that brain area is typically more developed in a male, but women are better wired at hearing certain sounds. So especially certain high-pitched sounds, so like a, a baby or a cat or something like that. So I don't know if this has happened in your house. Imagine, so in the middle of the night, like a, a cat cries or something outside. It'll wake up a woman in the middle of the night, and the guy's just snoring right through it, right? This is very common at ours um, because he's, he's not hearing those sounds. Now, guys, this isn't an excuse right, to sleep through when the baby's crying, because you can train yourself in your weaknesses. You can train yourself to, to become more aware of that. Um, but guys, what they have is better directional hearing. I thought that was interesting. So in that situation, the woman hears the cat, she wakes up, she can nudge the guy and say, what's that? And he can then wake up, hear the cat and say, it's coming from over there. And then he goes back to sleep. So we're good for something. <laughs> that, that's, what, that's what men can do. Um, but the real question I know everybody's wondering right now is, who is smarter? Who's smarter? They've done a lot of studies on this. Who wins the battle of the brains? Well, let me say this. Men tend to have larger brains. All right? But women have more gray matter, which is the stuff that actually does the thinking. But men have about 4 billion more brain cells trying to make up for that deficiency. But women have a more developed corpus callosum, which is this structure in the middle of the brain that connects the two hemispheres together. So they can make connections. 
right, at, this, at 30% greater rate, right? Which is why men tend to compartmentalize information. We, our lives are kind of compartmentalized, right? And women can get this piece of information, this piece of information, and see the connection, and we're like, what does that have to do with the other thing, right? But they see it. They see it. So in the end, who wins? Well, in the end, studies show women score an average of 3% higher on intelligence tests. So there you go. Way to go, sisters. You win. Hallelujah. Okay. Today, we are going to dive right into the, the kind of the deep end of this, this issue. We're going to get into some important issues that are very foundational, uh, not only for us in your personal life, but us as a church that kind of uh, really get into some of the distinctives of us as a, as a faith community. We're also going to touch on a little bit of controversy that goes on in the church between the sexes. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Genesis. First, but we're just going to start right in the beginning today. In Genesis, we're going to kind of do a, a brief overview of the first three chapters there uh, to kind of lay a scriptural foundation for this series. I want to start today by highlighting a couple of terms. These are kind of like big words that are big with theological nerds uh, like me, but uh, these might be words that you've heard and you, you know about. You may not know what these words meant. That's okay. Uh, they might be something that kind of describes something you already believe, you just didn't know it had a name for it. So we're going to talk about these. There's two schools of thought within the church, and I want to look at these today. Two schools of thought when it comes to gender and how we relate to each other. Generally speaking, they're, they're divided between egalitarian and complementarian. Egalitarianism, complementarianism. Uh, egalitarianism is pretty simple. It comes from the Latin word egal, which is... Equal. It means equal. It, it says that in the kingdom, the kingdom of God, this new humanity that Jesus has birthed in us through the gospel, in the kingdom of God, you and I relate to each other uh, primarily not so much by our gender, but as individuals. Not by our gender primarily. You are a gender, you know, uh, but I, that's not the first way that we relate to each other. As individuals and as equals. Complementarianism is a bit more nuanced. Uh, it says that we are different genders, and that means that we have different gender-specific roles to play in how we relate to each other, especially, and this comes into play, especially within the church and within the home or, or marriage. Uh, a term you'll sometimes see uh, associated with this, not all the, all the time, but sometimes is a patriarchy. Patriarchy literally means rule of men, rule of the fathers, is what patriarchy comes to. Um, associated with complementarianism. Here's the definition of complementarianism, and this is in, in their own words. This isn't uh, something we just like made up to make fun of them or something. Complementarianism. It says, a complementarian would say, while men and women are equal in value, in other words, God values us all, he loves us all exactly the same for sure. Men and women are not created equal in privilege. Men were made to have authority over women, at least in marriage and in the church, and women were made to submit to and be helpful to men. Okay? How are we doing so far? I see, I see some people nodding like, yep, that's, that's what I was taught. And, and some of you are like, there better be a butt coming soon. Um, <laughs> and, and together, their different gifts and roles complement each other. Complement as in like equally match, not like, hey, I like your shoes. Complement. <laughs> now, here's the thing I want to I state right off the bat here today. Both of these schools of thought are drawn out of Scripture. 
Both of these are drawn out of Scripture. Hard to believe, but yeah, Christians can actually read the same book and come to different conclusions. Isn't that true? Right. Our church is kind of built on that principle, right? We're a church that believes we can be in unity, we can serve God together, and not necessarily agree on every little thing, right? We've said that before. We have Jesus in common. And so... So, so Christians can come to different conclusions. What we want to do, I really want to do this morning, is remove the stereotype that, well, that group just doesn't follow the Bible. Uh, both complementarians and egalitarians are doing their best to follow the Bible and have come to different conclusions. They really are. And so I suspect some of us in the room today uh, might, might completely be comfortable with this and agree with this uh, right here, this school of thought, because we are a church where we all come together from different backgrounds. We serve together, we serve together in the name of Jesus we do, without agreeing on every little thing. Now, I'll tell you this, the official, I'll say the official position of Generations Church, it's the official position of me and Mel, <laughs> is solidly egalitarian, egalitarian. And that comes, like I said, from, actually from the French egalite, which means equality, and then from the Latin. But what does egalitarian theory say? It says that men and women were made in the image of God, according to Genesis 1, to rule together over creation in equal partnership, with no distinction, with no gender-based distinction in role or privilege. To be like God includes ruling and caring and creating like God. And it's our responsibility as a body to affirm the gifts and the callings of each individual that are given by God, both in ministry and at home. So that's where we stand, just so you know where we stand. And I'm, not, I'm not teaching this so we can you know, divide and conquer each other. I'm telling you this so you know where we're coming from. Because you might be someone who came from a background where uh, this doesn't happen. You know, women don't preach. And if you came last week, you would have been very surprised. Right? See this beautiful woman, my wife, up there preaching. So I want us to understand, understand both of these schools of thought, because although we are not complementarian theology, uh, we want to help you understand that maybe even the church down the street, right, and the, and, and the church down the street uh, might, who, who, who might teach complementarian theology, they're not teaching this because they're, you know, a bunch of bigots and they're sexists. They're not. They're not. They're teaching this out of the belief that it is actually what the Bible says, and so we respect that. And I hope that they're not saying about us, oh, that, you know, Generations Church over there, they believe in egalitarianism just because, you know, they're a bunch of liberals and they don't believe the Bible. Hopefully they're not saying that about us. Hopefully they understand that we actually believe what we believe because of what we see Scripture teaching and Jesus demonstrating. What Scripture teaches and Jesus demonstrates. So that's what we'll talk a little bit about today. I want to walk through the evidence a little bit of, of this uh, of the complementarian position first. You'll often hear, especially from these first three chapters of the Bible, uh, if you're in your Genesis, you can go over there. One of the arguments you'll hear for complementarianism is this, from, from, these, from the creation story. Men were made first before women. They were made first, and God gave the man the rules. Uh, so perhaps that says something, you know, about the hierarchy God is establishing. Uh, number two, uh, women were made to be a helper to man. Genesis 2.18 says this very plainly. It says that specifically. Uh, and number three, they'll say, God says the woman will rule over his wife. Hmm? You said, well, no. <laughs> the, uh, did I say that? 
Sorry, okay, I meant, I meant the husband. <laughs> Freudian slip there. <laughs> God says the husband will rule over his wife. Now that is clearly stated. It's clearly stated, right? There's no argument about that. It's in, it's in Genesis. So this seems to be a pretty good case for uh, uh, complementarian or hierarchical structure between men and women. So how does an egalitarian respond to these three claims? Well, let's look at these. I want to look at these one at a time real quickly here. Uh, the first one, that men were made first before women. What egalitarians would say is that order of creation has zero to do with authority, submission, or role. There's nothing in the scriptures that says the order of creation equals order of authority. It's just the order of creation. It's the order things were done in. Uh, there's nothing in the text. There's no statement about who's in charge. In fact, if you really want to bank on order of creation theory, one of the things we notice is that God always creates from least to the greatest, right? And, and so he kind of leaves the best till last. What was the last thing he created? Woman, right? So that's his crowning achievement there. If you want to make this a complementarian uh, argument, it's kind of an argument then for that men should submit uh, to the ultimate creation of women. Number two, women were made to be a helper to man. This is, this is in the scripture, and Genesis 2.18 says this. Here's what's interesting. The Hebrew word for helper in Genesis 2.18 almost always refers to the strong helping the weak. Did you know that? The Hebrew word to describe this word, it, it, it's, it's the word ezer. Learn this word, ezer, ezer. Everywhere else in Scripture, the word is always for the rich helping the poor, the, the strong rescuing the weak. In fact, it's the word most often used when God rescues his people. In the Psalms, when God comes and delivers Israel, he says, you are my shield, my rescuer, my ezer. It refers to God saving Israel over and over. He's referred to as the ezer. The way ezer is most commonly translated into English throughout the rest of the Scriptures is rescuer. Isn't that something? Rescuer. It's not a word that means you are the caddy to my golfer, <laughs> right? It, it, it's no more that than if, if, if a f your house was on fire and the, the fire department came out and that big guy is putting out the fire with his hose and you said, thank you so much. Will you go get me a cup of coffee now, right? He is your rescuer, right? He, he's not your servant. Hallelujah. It's, it's always a position of strength, rescuing the more needy of the two. Elsewhere in Scripture, it's very interesting. So if you want to, again, if you want to make an argument for complementarianism, it would actually be an argument for the superiority of women. But let me say this. There's a reason we don't go that far and say, well, oh, well, I guess women are superior. There's a reason. And that's because attached to the word Ezra in the Scripture is this little qualifying adjective, connecto. She is the Ezra connecto. And that is a very important word as well. Because Eve is described as the Ezer Konegdo, and not just the Ezer. It tells us that Eve, as the Konegdo type of Ezer, she is actually similar to Adam, who corresponds to him. He is equal counterpart. And so that's why the scripture says she is a helper, rescuer, Ezer, suitable for him. Konegdo. It literally means perfectly matching. Isn't that beautiful? Perfectly matching. 
You know, if you're reading the old King James, it'll say, uh, we'll, we'll make a helper meet for him, a helper who is meet for him. The old English word meet meant, meant fits perfectly together. A helper who is meet for him. So Eve, what this tells us, Eve is not Adam's underling to serve him like a waitress, nor is she his Lord to rule him. She is his perfect equal, his Ezra Konegdo. Amen. All right, let's look at the third thing here. God says the husband will rule over the wife. The husband will rule over the wife. The husband ruling over the wife is part of the curse. It's not part of creation. Look at where in the story it comes. It's clearly stated it will happen, but it happens in Genesis 3 when God is declaring the curse on them. It's not part of his original design. And so a lot of the realities that people will point to about men and women, we have to be careful and look. Where does it happen? Is, is, is this a fruit of Genesis chapter 1 or a fruit of Genesis chapter 3? Is this part of creation or is this part of the curse? And yeah, we are living under the, the curse in a lot of areas of the world, Right? So we want to, let's take a look at the scriptures. Let's take a look at Genesis and see what comes out of it. I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to skip to verse 26. God said, let us make mankind. The mankind, the word there, and some of your translations will say human beings. The word in the Hebrew, if you look up one of those, it's ha-adam. Ha-adam. Uh, ha-adam literally means uh, ones who come from the dirt, the earth. So God is literally saying, let us make earthlings. We're going to make earthlings. In our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over creation. That they. So here, uh, the, the ha-adam is referring to the race. And so among the ha-adam, there's no singling out here of one sex being over the other. God refers to the humans as them. Uh, this authority over creation to take care and rule, it's given to the ha-adam, male and female. So there's, there's male ha'adams, there are female ha'adams. That's the only mention here of authority over or ruling is over creation. So, so God created the ha'adam in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. We got male ha'adam and female ha'adam. So ha'adam are the original earthlings. Everybody with me? All right. Now later in the story, Adam becomes uh, the man's proper name. We start just referring to him as Adam or Adam. But... Here, it's male and female together. Verse 28 says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. He's talking to both of them. Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over. Here, ruling again is mentioned for the male and the female. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, rule together. Everybody good? Everybody still with me? You're okay? Okay. Now, let's jump over to chapter two. Chapter two is interesting because... And the structure of the story, it kind of does a flashback. We're flashing back in chapter 2, where we were talking about the human race, the Ha'adam. And now in chapter 2, we're going back to zero in on a particular story of one couple that was part of the human race. One couple, Adam and Eve here. So we're, we're looking at here. Here, uh, here we go. Verse 18, the Lord God said, so right, right now there's just one. There's, there's one human being on the earth, it says. The Lord God said it is not good for the human, the Ha'adam. God's still referring to him as an earthling. And, and by the way, he's not using the masculine word for man. There's a masculine word he's going to use in a few verses, ish, ish. But right now he's still referring to him as the earthling. It's not good for the earthling to be alone. Notice something else that's interesting, always interesting to me. The fall hasn't happened yet. 
the fall, everything is good, and yet God, for the first time, says something is not good. There's some not good happening in this perfect garden. And the reason is because he is not in relationship with another like him. He's not in relationship. God calls it not good. And notice, too, in this context, God and, and Adam already have a beautiful relationship. Adam has God all to himself, doesn't he? Right? And it's not enough. What Adam needed wasn't more of God. It was, it was another like him. Because we are created to need human relationship. We are created to need, I'm not talking about marriage. We're not necessarily created to need a spouse, but we are created to need human relationship. Amen. So what does God say? I will make a helper suitable for him. There's that Ezra Konegdo. I'm going to make him a, I'm going to make a rescuer just like him. There's the first mention there. So God comes up with a plan. Here's what he says in verse 19. Now here's, it's interesting. He just said, okay, this isn't good. I'm going to make him a helper. Uh, I need to come up with a plan. And he at first, it looks like he kind of like gets sidetracked, right? Is God absent-minded here or something like that? He starts doing something else. But watch what he's doing. He's got a purpose. Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the naming of the animals here is not just some arbitrary busy work, like Adam's bored, I need to get him something to do. The purpose is to give Adam an opportunity to spend time with creation, to, to, to ponder and to realize the same thing that God already knows, which is, hey, I don't have a partner. I'm looking at everything. Everything comes in twos. There's maleness and femaleness. Everything comes in twos, and they fit together. They relate together, and I don't have this. And so verse 21, so the Lord God caused him to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, the word there literally is side, um, it's just it's not his feet, it's not from his head, it's from his side. And then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, for she was taken out of the man. Now, here's what's interesting. This is the first time genders in the Hebrew are mentioned. It's the first time. Up until now, it's been the hot Adam, you know, on the earth, the lonely earthling. Now we see the creation of gender. Woman taken out of the man, Isha taken from the Ish, creating two new distinct co-ruling human beings that we saw in chapter one. So now, see, now we jump back into the chapter one where he, he gives them their marching orders. Here's, here's your mission, right? Rule the earth together. And together they, they are the, the Ha'adam. So this man and this woman... They now have distinct complementary biology. There's two of them, and they're different. But there's no hint in any of this of patriarchy. There's no hint of one having authority over or being subservient to the other. We don't see that until Genesis 3, after the fall happens, after sin enters the world. And we're going to jump there now and jump over to chapter 3. And we've talked in messages past about the sin that takes place, that's the Adam and Eve sin. Uh, it's so foundational to, to the human story, but I want to pay attention to now to, to verse 16. Adam and Eve have sinned, and notice God begins to pronounce a curse. Notice it's not a command, it is a curse, okay? Let's say that together. It's not a command, it's a curse. It's a curse, okay. God is describing what would happen, not necessarily what should happen. This is what would happen. He says to the woman, I'll make your pains in childbearing severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
So this is tragic. This is the first mention of rulership happening between humans. Rulership between humans is part of the curse, right? This is, this is something that is way off here. One beautiful image bearer of God ruling over another beautiful image bearer of God. This is not how it was meant to be, right? And, and your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. Now to Adam, he said this, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Here's what God is saying. This is the curse of what's going to happen, Adam, for you. You have to labor. Now you live in a world of scarcity. There's scar- you, the, we're all done with the garden. Listen, the world of plenty is gone. This is a cursed world. And in a cursed world, to the stronger go the spoils, right? Now there's going to be competition for resources, You're going to have to become the more aggressive, the more competitive than the other guy. This is part of the tragic curse. And for the woman, what does this look like for her? We're in a fallen world where might makes right, where power equals success. Now she has fewer and fewer opportunities to thrive as an equal, right? So she's more and more bound to the home and child rearing, and and she's forced to depend on the man to work for her. And so what does she have to do? Well, she has to look for the stronger, the more aggressive, the more successful man, because she is bound to him. She's bound to him. This is the state of humanity for the last 10,000 years. Picking the bad boy, the beast, that's now in her interest. (laughs) And this is what's been playing out. For millennia and millennia, her curse has been that while she seeks the strongest male because his riches become her riches and his protection become her security, the problem is she's also got to live with him. You know what I'm saying? And he hasn't exactly been bred for tenderness. He's been bred for aggression. That's why she picked him. And she's got to live with him now. And her curse is facing that My desire will be for him, but he will rule over me. This is the curse for the woman. And this is the sorry state of male-female dynamics for 10,000 years. Now, is that offensive? Yes, you bet. Is it true? Sadly, yeah. If you look at history, that's, that's a pretty good snapshot of history between man and woman. Cursed man cursed woman, their relationship to one another infected with power and survival and competition, survival of the fittest, none of which existed in the garden. But here's the good news. Jesus, Jesus Christ has come to set us free from the curse and the law. He said so. I've come to set you free. He sets us free. So we are living in a new covenant in the kingdom. Oh, it's a whole new thing. It's a whole new ballgame now, right? So the question is for us in the church today, living in this new kingdom, is our goal to keep perpetuating the cursed life, keep it up as much as we possibly can, holding that up as some kind of ideal? Is Genesis 3 our ideal? Or do we say, wait, 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 wait. In Christ, we live counterculturally. 
We live counterculturally. In Christ, it's not about power dynamics anymore. It's not about aiming for Genesis 3, the gutter. It's about the restoration of the garden. It's about the power now. We have the right and the power and the freedom to willingly submit to each other. Mutual submission, which we hear about in the New Testament. Mutual submission. We hear that we get to willingly lay down our lives for our fellow man. We get to be the Ezers, the rescuers of our fellow man in the name of Jesus. That is what he has called us to be. Men and women, we get to be Ezers. In Christ, we say no to the patterns of sin and the fall. We say yes to the way of love. In Christ, we undo in partnership with the power of the Holy Spirit and his grace that fills us. We undo the curse of the fall. Hallelujah. Before we finish today, I want to I peek over at the New Testament. This is really cool. Let's look at what this new kingdom looks like. Now imagine this. We just read about this horrible fall of man and the state of male-female dynamics now for thousands of years. Boom, Jesus hits on the scene. Here's what I want us to notice too. The New Testament, think of it this way. It's a snapshot of what happens when the kingdom of God, that kingdom that Jesus initiates on the earth, when the kingdom of God meets head-on the cultures and the kingdoms of a fallen world. We have two kingdoms colliding, and we get a record of this happening. It's a snapshot in the New Testament. And as we're going to move over the coming weeks, what we're going to see is there is a clear trajectory that Jesus has started. He has started this beautiful thing, and, and it shall not be, be stopped. Here's the thing, though. How this gets fleshed out, how it gets implemented, is not always so clean and simple. We've got thousands and thousands and thousands of years of fallen nature working against us. Jesus comes along. He teaches a freedom from the curse a freedom to become children of God who are equal in value and equal in privilege. He, he teaches a kingdom where Mary of Bethany can sit and learn from the master, and he says, it shall not be taken from her. That kind of kingdom. But here's the deal. The early church in first century Roman Empire in the Middle East still has to ask, how do we apply this in our world, right? How do we do this? This new kingdom these kingdoms smashing together, what does this look like? For instance, how do, how do we practically apply this when not everybody is able to read? What do we do when men are the only ones who are literate? Who, who gets to teach? Who gets to preach in church? How do we work out this new freedom that we have to worship together and preach to one another? How do husbands and wives relate to each other in a home? In a home, remember, where there is still slaves. A Christian husband and wife goes home and has their slave. How do we work out this kingdom? Get this. The New Testament doesn't show us a finished painting of everything made perfect. It doesn't. The New Testament is a snapshot of a war taking place in the middle of the battle. It's being written in the middle of the war. It would be like if a, if a war correspondent were sitting on the beaches of Normandy in the middle of World War II and said, guys, the allies have landed. The allies have landed. There is hope. Victory is on the way. And I think in the writings of Paul, we can see the seeds get planted, these seeds of hope, the seeds of equality that, that actually continue to grow in the, coming, in the coming centuries. They're fanned into flame over and over. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, and I love this so much. 
He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all one. Now, I want to point out a problem with Paul saying this. When he's writing this, there is hierarchy in his culture. He's in the thick of it. There is a hierarchy of Jew versus Gentile. There is a hierarchy of men versus women. It's not theoretical. Women were property, basically. There is hierarchy of slave versus free. There's masters and slaves walking around. And some of them go to church together. How messy is that? And Paul still says, pointing to a greater reality. He says, here is a, is a reality where there will be equality of value, equality of privilege, full functionality in, in the body of Christ. It's like that war correspondent saying, guys, let me tell you about free Europe. There is neither ally or axis, but we are free, right? But the war is still going on. The battle is still happening. Today, today, some of us in, the, in their Christian circles, we're trying to, trying to work this out. We figure this out. And so there's some of us in circles who will say, well, Paul is saying here male and female are equal in value. God loves us both, but not equal in privilege. Men and women still have very different roles, spiritually speaking, and those roles can't be, can't be mixed. But this doesn't really add up if we look at what Paul is saying here. The context of what he's saying, the purpose of what he's saying, and the things that he says. For instance, we would not accept any argument today if someone said, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither Jew nor Gentile. That means you are equal in value, Jews and Gentiles, but only Jewish Christians get to be in charge. Sorry, Gentiles. Right? Jew Jewish Christians, you know, y'all were the, the first, the chosen by God, so you're going to be in charge. Or, or if someone came up here to this pulpit and said, there is neither slave nor free, we wouldn't accept it if they said, well, but that, you know, that's equality of value. God loves slaves and he loves free people, but in our church, the slaves sit over here and the free people sit over here. We need to keep them separate. Can I get a big heck no? <laughs> right? We wouldn't allow ourselves to divide over social economic principles divide our fellowship. You know, rich people Bible study is on Tuesday nights, everybody. <laughs> if you're making under 50,000, you're going to gather on Wednesday and study together. That's when you get to get together, right? We would say, no, that's wrong. That's not right. We are not going to, we, we, we don't, there's no distinction of privilege or fellowship within the church based on race or social economic stature. But then we come to male and female and we say, oh yeah, well, that should be divided. There's no, they say that, you know, God loves us, he values us, but there should be equality, there shouldn't be equality of privilege. There shouldn't be equal ability to lead. Uh, for me, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. I'll tell you this, I for one am so grateful, I am so grateful and humbled that the local church that God has planted me in here at Generations Church ha is, is solidly egalitarian. And I'm grateful because I weep, I weep to think of an alternate reality when over the past 30-something years, we have not been incredibly blessed by the wisdom preached by powerful women 
like Monica Hale or Cheryl Paddington, right? Who is one of the most amazing teachers and prophets I've ever met, right? Joy White, Dr. Hildy Sargent, Melissa Hale. Tragedy is what it would be if we have missed out on that for all, for all these decades. You see, here's the thing. Silencing women, silencing women, it really isn't just a, you know, one of those silly old-fashioned annoyances we laugh off. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy in the church. And I know that's bold to say. It's a tragedy because it's not just an immoral act against the women. It, it is the, the, the fact of 50% of the gifts and voices that God has given the church, the fact of all those voices being silenced, hurts the church in immeasurable ways. And I, and I mourn to think of the voices of, of, of women that I haven't got to hear over the, you know, classics. What are the sermons that I never got to hear that have never been written down? Because those gifts and talents given by God, were silenced. So praise God, praise God. The kingdom of God is on a trajectory. It begins in the New Testament. It begins. Jesus starts it, and it can't be stopped. And it points us, if you look at what Jesus says, you look at how he treats women, and you look at how the, the declarations that are made, it points us to nothing less than full freedom from the curse, full restoration of dignity for men and for women, full equality. Now, did the church in the first century still have to work through uh, some, some issues going on in their culture? Yeah, you bet. And we'll talk about those over the next few weeks because you know, there's a lot of scriptures people will point to and they, they're kinda, they can be kind of troubling. We're going to look at those. They were working through these issues. Was it messy? <laughs> you bet it was. They're still grappling. Remember this. They are grappling with all this stuff as the Bible is being written. God didn't wait like a couple of hundred years and then write the Bible. It's happening on the spot, right? The allies are invading. And that's the report we get. So we're going to look at some of that in the coming weeks. Here in this letter, though, to the Galatians, I believe Paul dares to dream. He dares to dream. I think Paul is prophesying, for you are all one. You are all one. Can we just say that together? Say that with me. For you are all one. Say it again. For you are all one. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of, of partnership in the kingdom. And I ask that your spirit would draw us closer today. That we, Lord, we look forward to what we're going to learn from you, learn from each other over the days ahead and the weeks ahead. Give us this opportunity, Father God, to invest in each other to learn from each other, to submit humbly to one another. Give us the opportunity, Lord God, to be one in Christ Jesus together. In Jesus' name I pray. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Our prayer partners are up here, men and women, ready to pray for you. Hallelujah, God flowing through us according to the gifts that he disperses in the body. So come up here. If there's anything at all going on in your life that you need someone to pray with you about in faith, do not leave without prayer. Come on and let him pray for you. Have a great week and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.